This is the Hack the Future podcast, the human stories behind courage, purpose, and imagination. Join your host, Terrence Mowry, who will guide you on the journey of reimagining the world as we know it. Amy, welcome to Hack the Future. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Delightful to be here. It's great to see you. Today, I want to give our audience, our listeners around the world, the equivalent of a double espresso to uh, shake up mindsets and say goodbye to the status quo. And we were having a conversation before we went live today, and you mentioned that you have a new book coming out. So let's start straight away with that book, The Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. And I love that title. Can you tell me more about that publication? This is my attempt to demystify failure. You know, with failure, we really have two camps out there, which is, you know, failure is not an option and everything must go well and fail fast, fail often. Well, neither, neither of these two camps have the full story, right? In a sense, they're both right and context Mm. matters. So the point of the book is to say there are three kinds of failure and only one is really desirable i call those rather unimaginatively intelligent failures and i, I can love say that. about those right and then yes. the other kind basic failures and complex failures are those that we should do everything we can to prevent as often as possible and so yes. that's sort of the overall framework i of course have many many stories and examples And a set, I would say, of best practices, both, right, for both the good kinds of failure and the bad. I also talk about self-awareness, situation awareness, and system awareness as crucial competencies. Such a timely theme, and reminds me of this idea that when we're born, we're hyper-curious, we think expansively, and by the time we leave college, university, we're thinking reductively, and we're very averse to risk-taking. Failure is framed as a badge of shame rather than a badge of courage, sort of expanding on what you've shared with me. What are some of the biggest blind spots you think, based on your research and your writing, some of the big blind spots around how we need to reframe failure as a a platform for learning and growth? To begin with, all of us can learn from all kinds of failures. In fact, we must. A failure not learned from is really a waste. That's the most tragic outcome, in my view. We also have to be willing to take smart risks, which will often require failure along the way, so as to learn even more than we would just from our natural failures. So an intelligent failure, right? Not only you personally can learn from, you know, your colleagues, your community can learn from, are those that are genuinely in new territory. They are in pursuit of an important goal, an opportunity Mm. that that you and probably others also discern. They are hypothesis driven. It's thoughtful testing of a possibility. A smart failure, an intelligent failure is as small as possible. So you don't take a larger risk than you can afford reputationally or even, you know, from a physical safety perspective. How do we find out more about what works and what doesn't? Safest, smartest, and effective way possible. It shines so strongly with me. I was having a a very lively conversation with uh, Professor Rita McGrath a couple of weeks ago. And she spoke about the ratio of assumptions to knowledge and this big idea that uh, we really need to go big on creating cultures of learning and exploration. Right now out there, we seem to have uh, disruption on steroids. We've got perma-crisis, poly-crisis, 
predictably unpredictable. What are you seeing out there mm. at the moment? Is there a direct correlation between uh, sort of stress and its impact on psychological safety? Absolutely. There's so much there in that question to unpack. And let me just start with, yes, we are in extraordinarily turbulent times. In the aftermath of a global pandemic, most of us really hoped things would sort of settle down. And of course, they haven't. You know, that may or may not have anything to do with the disruption we've all just been through. But the reality is, is that the world today is more uncertain, more interdependent than ever before. What are the implications of that? As you said it as well, constant learning is absolutely vital. Number two, we're 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 exhausted, and 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 so in in a way, there's a distinction between a kind of sudden crisis, an unexpected, large, crucial crisis like the Chilean mine crisis. It demands ingenuity and innovation, but the mm. whole program is quite top down and people are willing to kind of roll up their sleeves, sacrifice in the short term to get through it. Sudden crisis. Right now, what we're in is kind of sustained crisis. Question had this as well. The goal mm. now is not just solving the problem, it's enabling resilience. Part of it, I believe, does stem from doing everything we can to instill a kind of a learner mindset, a learning mindset yes. in people that that is a little bit more, a little less surprised by and exhausted by novelty and change. If we can train ourselves to expect things changing, then it becomes sort of, okay, this is part of our reality. You have to find the strategies and the ways to kind of take care of yourself, you know, to get enough sleep, to get enough um, healthy food. And But your your new job, like your new role is not to just slog through stuff, but to enjoy the problem solving and teaming. You know, we, again, we can we can be smarter with our time. We can try to focus. We can try to work harder picking the problems that need to be solved and who we really need to solve them with and try to tune out the rest. Right? That resonates so strongly. It resonates so strongly with me as you were sharing that those insights. Two words came to mind. First of all, in Finland, the word sizu, a Viking spirit, the ability to bounce back and bounce forward really? in the face of adversity. So we need to elevate our sizu spirit. And then in Japan, karoshi, which is death at your desk from stress. And I've been saying oh. all this year that data is not the new oil. AI is not the new oil. Attention is the new oil. I saw a post from Professor Adam Grant this morning. And he was speaking about this idea that when we have shallow work and shallow focus rather than deep work and deep focus, that can hardwire us to deprioritize uh, psychological safety, for example. We go into very much a rush mode, sort of get a sense of, do you, do you see any correlations there? No question about it, right? Because in a way, we're we're more willing and able to speak up, you know, first, of course, when we're with people who we we believe will not punish or humiliate us when we when we get something wrong. So that's the kind of fundamentals of, of a psychologically safe environment. But I think mm. we're also more likely to speak of when we're truly focused, passionate, engaged by the work. Mm. You know, most of our attention is on hoping and wanting to make progress and solve the problems. Right? We're a little less focused on, you know, how do I look? And that is not only, you know, a more effective state and more likely to breed the resilience 
that you describe, the ability mm. to bounce back that, that you allude to. This segues so nicely into a question, which is we know that the pandemic was an accelerant for many things, e-commerce, automation, but also I think business models going off like yogurt in the fridge, mindsets going <laughs> off, like old uh, leadership behaviors going off like yogurt in the fridge as well. And I wanted to ask you, how is the world doing in terms of its progress with psychological safety? It's a yes and no answer. Yes. Right. So on the one hand, I think one of the things that has been going well or that we're doing well is that there is far greater, I mean, nearly in, in business circles, nearly universal awareness that psychological safety matters, right? that there's a kind of awareness that um, if people aren't speaking up, aren't bringing their you know full brain to work, the performance of the business in any context you can name will suffer. Yes. So that's sort of, that's progress. The downside or the risk is that psychological safety has ballooned to take on everything, right? If something doesn't go well or go my way at work, you've violated my psychological safety. Nonsense, right? It's, yes. Psychological safety has come for some people to mean that, you know, everything I want or need at work should be provided to me and that like it should be comfortable psychological safety is really about being uncomfortable right that right that knowledge work is hard that um conflict is both essential to progress and uncomfortable you know if you're going to make really good decisions mm -hmm. in the sense of uncertainty you're mm -hmm. going to have to have difficult conversations we're trying to make high quality bets in an uncertain yes world. And these come from high quality conversations. These are not easy. So when psychological safety comes to me, everything from job security to, um, you know, just being nice, then we're going to lose the power of the construct. In my mind, psychological safety isn't and never has been the goal, right? The right. goal is performance. The goal is innovation or quality improvement. It's or the outcome. It's the outcome and you need it to reach that outcome. Let's go really practical for a few moments. There's a sort of new manager. It could be any sector listening uh, to our conversation today. What would be one or two first steps to start activating shared understanding and clarity uh, around psychological safety? You know, first, I just say think aloud more often. And by that, I mean, particularly with respect to the work that lies ahead, yes. the project um, mm -hmm. that lies ahead. So say things as often as you can, like, wow, we've never done anything like this before. Right? So what you're doing in those kinds of statements is you're framing the work as the kind of work that is desperately dependent on our ability to speak up. Probably in, in most cases, managers or team leaders, they take that for granted. They assume everybody sort of sees and thinks about the work in the same way they do. The problem is that many people just bring their past assumptions, norms, beliefs that are that are kind of outdated. Childhood or their schooling or their prior job experience where, you know, you don't disagree with the boss or the, you know, you wait and see, you don't want to get it wrong. So you wait and see, you know, you bide your time. So you've got to deliberately override some of those habits and, yes. and calling attention to what's at stake, why it's challenging, but also why it's meaningful and fun. That's number one. And is this the job solely of the, no. the manager or is this really about care 
and co-creation. It's it's about we, not me. It's totally about we, not me. In fact, that if if I had only two minutes, I think I'd talk about how do we move from a kind of spontaneous state of me to we, our opportunities, our possibilities. It really is, and the the short answer is. For, you know, for whose responsibility is this? It's everyone's. The data-driven answer is that those in positions of, you know, authority or power have a sized impact. Anyone can call attention to, say, the novelty of this project. I'm just, just a team member. I've just opened the, the floodgates for others to be like, no, yes. yeah. This is bottom-up. It's, it's peer-driven. What about boardrooms? If we've got uh, CEOs, C-level listening in today as well, I certainly see when I travel around the world, uh, whether it's advisory or speaking, that psychological safety is a blind spot in the boardroom as well. Let's face it. What are some practical uh, next steps or reflections for the board to be thinking about? You know, the most important skill, leadership skill, C-level skill, and you know, frontline people leader skill is the is the skill of inquiry, the skill of asking good questions. One of my mentors, Chris Argerus, um, used to used to record you know boardroom conversations and executive conversations with their permission, of course, to help them understand where they were getting stuck. What Chris called defensive routines, which he would also call non-learning routines or inhibiting their own ability to learn and make the very best decisions possible. One of the most prominent observations of those data were mm. that people don't actually ask questions. Sometimes um, leading questions, you know, I'm right, right? But the genuine question, it's sort of what are we missing that is the kind that is designed so that I will learn more from you were rare, right? And that is an assumption, right? There's an assumption that oh, I'm supposed to know, I'm supposed to have the answers. And people believe they're going to look weak if they ask questions, look quite thoughtful I, and smart. I think people should be saying, look, what's the boldest question we're going to ask this quarter? What questions do we want to be remembered for in this meeting? It reminds me of the work of Professor Hal Gregerson at MIT. He says, questions are the answer. Uh, <laughs> and, and the provocative questions, pressure testing questions, questions that, like you say, show deep uh, inquiry uh, and, and are meant to push us out of the comfort zone. But the, the result of that is that we get to reframe perspectives or, or challenge outdated assumptions. Absolutely. And I love Hal's work. And you know, part of the, you know, Part of trying to get more questions in ordinary work conversation mm. is, you know, there's some skills there and how to do it well. But another mm. part is just reinvigorating curiosity because you can train me in the art of question asking and that, that will help me. I'm remembering that I don't know everything. I'll be more spontaneously likely to ask questions and yes. some of them will be very good questions. I wanted to now move into some of your influential mentors or, or people that really made a difference in your life. And Buckminster Fuller, I think he was behind the Lattice Shall structures, for example. Yep. You know, tell yep. me more about that experience and how it's right. informed what you're doing today in terms of intelligent failure and psychological safety. What were some of the big learnings from that partnership? Well, here, this was sort of the end game of that partnership. And then, oh, uh, you know, I, I wrote this book. Now, I'm not advocating anybody read it. It's a, you know, it's a deep dive into spherical trigonometry and other aspects of his work. So you don't need to read it. But um, 
What you need to know about Buckminster Fuller is that he was the most um, curious, generous, kind of brilliant, um, teeming, visionary thinker, um, certainly that, that I ever met. He had a single-minded desire to sort of make the world a better place through using the using design, right? Using design thinking way before it was popular. Yes. And, and yet he had this sense that, you know, if you try to just persuade people to change their behavior, it doesn't work very well. You know, if you sort of design the environment in a way that makes the new behavior more, um, more, more obvious or, or easier, yes. then, then people will change. Now, working for him certainly opened me up to, um, a very different way of, you know, very different kind of workplace and mm. way of thinking about our role as human beings in society. So a very human centric approach again, before it arguably became a buzzword. Yes. And he was of course all about, you know, the, he didn't, we didn't have the word climate change then the worry about um, environmental destruction. So, so we can design better, you know, better, housing better, better vehicles, better everything to do more with less and waste fewer resources. Thank you for sharing that. I recently came back from the Gulf, from the touring the Middle East. Wow. And psychological safety is a big strategic theme over there as well. But there seems to be a challenge, which is obviously power dynamics, cultural differences. I wanted to get your take on how do teams and leaders reconcile power dynamics, the power distance index is much higher in that part of the world as well. How do we reconcile that with psychological safety for those in the Gulf? It's an extremely good question. And another way to say that is it's an extremely big challenge. Yes. And, and, and here's how I want to talk about it. It is absolutely the case that when there is higher power distance in a, in a region, in a national culture, uh, the psychological safety of people lower in the hierarchy is is going to be on average lower right so you yes. so you have lower psychological safety you have a bigger psychological safety problem same time it is also the case that the complex uncertain nature of the work is every bit as dependent on creating that psychological safety as it is in let's say the west where it's supposedly easier so what do you do when something is harder but just as important. Are the strategies different? I would argue not very, right? It's about the educational journey may be longer and more intensive. And the new reality is one in which your brain, your ingenuity, your ability to problem solve and team up with others is absolutely critical to your ability to add value to our organization. You're clarifying that. Having taught it, you're doing everything you can to remove the barriers. Some of that is how do you respond when someone raises a dissenting view? And the answer is appreciatively, right? So you've got, <laughs> you've got to do more work, I would argue, development, people manage your skills and leadership skills. I love that. And I think it, um, it resonates for me, this idea that what we get as an outcome, one of the outcomes, because there are many, is a ROI, which I define not just as return on investment, but return on intelligence return on imagination, return on integrity, Ooh. and return on Ooh. ideas. <laughs> I love that. Those are four good eyes, right? <laughs> Intelligence, integrity, ideas, and what was the other Yes, one? and so integrity, imagination, ideas, imagination. and there was, a, there was another one as well. Yeah, so this idea yeah, of you create a cognitively enabled organization, human beings right. that are genuinely 
empowered to run at the hardest problems and, and, and to have uh, an emotional stake in that. And that's a great yeah. place to be. Yep. And, and they're not alone, right? They're, you're not asking them to go and be all alone with this new challenge. You're asking them to work with each other, to team up, you know, to, yes. to sort of create those kinds of communities. We're coming to the last final five minutes and I could talk to you for another five hours. But in this final five minutes, how do we build psychological safety when people are working remotely or distributed or in a hybrid environment? Wow. Well, first of all, that's a stunning statistic. It's the kind of thing that I think I all of us suspect is happening, but I didn't have numbers for it. Um, I think it is absolutely devastating. What makes us human is our connectedness with each other. This is the richness of our lives. Shown in research, the, the Valent Project here at Harvard that's been going on for many decades, shown quite powerfully that not only your satisfaction in life, but your actual longevity, very dependent on the quality of the relationships you have, you know, partners in life, but also also uh, friendships. Where do friendships come from? They come from school friends. As we sort of grow into working adults, many, many friendships are built at work. Some of the same things we do or some of the same expertise we do, we build relationships with them. If you take that out of the human equation, that is a giant experiment um, that we may be partially undertaking right now. There's no answer. I think there's more of a kind of, ooh, let's watch this. Let's experiment yes. with this. Let's try things. So let's say you've got people who are working exclusively remotely. Let's mm. think about what it's going to take to, um, you know, to build real connectedness. Like what kinds of questions do we have to ask? What kinds of experiences do we have to have? I've seen, you know, we have a, a case study on a company that's been remote only from the beginning uh, called Levels and in, in the sort of the healthcare informatics space. And mm. their CEO claims that you're not supposed to have friends at work. Like your friends are your friends that you go hiking with or do things afterwards, but not at work. So mm. this doesn't matter. That's okay. We can parcel it off. Mm. I'm not so sure. I mean, that that, that may be an answer, but I, yes. I don't think... I think we're we're going to be learning over the next couple of years um, what we really care about, what works, what doesn't work, how much complex ingenuity work can be done as well remotely as in person. That's I mm. still think that's an empirical question um, that that we need to be asking. It's an inflection moment, inflection point for I think humanity, and obviously there's so much hype at the moment and hysteria. Uh, around uh, generative AI and ChatGPT yes. or Bard. And what worries me is uh, I'm not seeing enough questions such as how do we align this technology to serve humanity's interests, democratic functioning, well-being? Do you have a point of view on this, the rise of AI and its impact on leadership and, and, and psychological safety in general? I think it's um, a little tricky to predict. These are questions that we should be studying very systematically. Yes. First of all, I wanted to thank you for joining me today. Um, this is a great book for everybody to read if you haven't read it already, The Fearless Organization. I think this was published around 2019. That's just correct. before the pandemic. And this is a great book. Um, the, the sort of big takeaway is, I think, unlocking a psychological safety for the self, for the team, for the culture. What about your new book? Are you able to share the cover yep. of that new book? Yes, I am. Yeah, so so this here we go. Cover, or at least this right is kind of wrong. Right kind of wrong. The Science of Failing Well. 
right? And this this builds on the psychological safety work. Say, you know, you need psychological safety to uh, to experiment, to learn, to problem solve, and you need to think about failure or the things that go wrong the right way, right? Yes. The most the most useful, productive, and creative way. You need to not beat yourself up for what I'll call beeps going forward or failures in new territory. Thomas Edison is supposed to have said, yes. I haven't failed. I just found 10,000 ways that didn't work, right? That's the right kind of wrong. That sort of um, cheerfulness with which he talks about the things that went wrong on the way mm -hmm. to a breakthrough innovation. Similarly, all of us, you know, whether it's um, finding a life partner or uh, solving some tough problems in your, in your, in your job, all of us need to celebrate and welcome the right kind of wrong on the way to the goals we're really trying to meet, how to do that, how to think about it and how to enact it. I can't wait to read your new book. Are you going to be coming over to the UK as well at some point? I will. I will come over in um, in September sometime, again in November um, for for a conference, but in September for, um, I hope, some some book activities. Amy Evanson, thank you so much for joining Hack the Future today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to seeing you again very soon. The pleasure has been mine. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm.